This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good evening. I'm glad to see you all here. And it's my prayer and hope that something I have to say tonight will be beneficial to us all. We're going to be in the book of Philippians tonight, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, I want to tell you a hypothetical story. So pretend there's some sort of sports event. Let's say it's basketball. Let's say it's the biggest thing ever, this national championship. One team's down by two, five seconds left. The player, the player on the losing team, he has the ball. He's behind the three-point line. And right before he shoots, he says a prayer under his breath. And remembers his favorite verse, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He shoots the ball, time freezes, the crowd is gasping as they are trying to figure out if the ball's going to go in or not, and the player watches as it slowly moves toward the basket and misses. And he's confused, he doesn't know what's going on. He's, I mean, the Bible says it, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He starts to doubt himself. Did I not pray enough? Was my faith not strong enough? Is the Bible wrong? So why did he miss? Well, maybe he missed because that's not really what the verse means. So on that note, before we dive into Philippians, I want to talk a little bit about context. So what is context? So a dictionary definition would be the circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or idea, and in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. Now that part is very, very important. In terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed, meaning that without it, it can't be fully understand. understood. Sorry. And in the case of the Bible, the context would include surrounding verses, chapters, books, and also who wrote the book, who's the book written to, things such as that. And why is context so important when we're reading the scripture? Well, I'm going to give you two more examples. I think today, so many Christians unknowingly see the Bible as this treasure chest. They open it up and it's got all these individual coins and they see one that's shiny and, oh, that fits me. That's comforting. That, that brings me courage. That fits my circumstance. So I'm going to take that individual coin away from the whole. And that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is more like an eloquent rug woven together with these complex weaves and fabrics. And one on its own doesn't have that as much value, but together they form a masterpiece. So by examining verses as a part of a whole, as a part of the whole Bible, we can be better edified. So I have four steps that I like to use when I'm reading the Bible. Step one, context is key. Without studying context, it makes it that much harder to correctly interpret a piece of scripture. Through studying it, though, we can derive the meaning intended by the author and be truly edified by it. To do this, we must familiar, familiarize ourselves with the literature surrounding a specific verse, whether that be just surrounding verses or chapters or books. Step two, find the principles or lessons that we can learn from within the text. Now, sometimes there's one, there's two. Sometimes there's not always an underlying scriptural lesson. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, there's not always some underlying spiritual messenger. Can we learn from it? 
Absolutely, but there's not always some underlying theme there. Once we've found those lessons and principles, the next step is to make sure that that lines up with the rest of the Bible. Because if we, we find something and we think this verse says that and it doesn't agree with the rest of the Bible, the Bible never contradicts itself. So if that's the case, we may want to reread it. And then once we check to make sure everything adds up scripturally, of course, the last step is to apply it. So before we go through those steps on Philippians 4.13, I do want to make a point. I'm not up here saying don't ever read your Bible if you're not going to read a whole chapter or a whole, ver- whole book. And anything like that, what I'm trying to say is that we need to give this book the time and respect it deserves. Because, I mean, this is the word of God, after all. So it does deserve as much time as we can give it. So with that being said, let's apply these steps to Philippians 4.13. The first thing I'm going to go over is what's going on in the book of Philippians as a whole. Who's writing this book? Well, Paul is writing this book to the Philippians, as the title says, more specifically the church at Philippi. An important thing to know, and as we'll find this out later in the book, Paul is in prison while he's writing this. Why did Paul write this letter? Well, like most of Paul's letters that he writes, it's to provide teaching and advice to most of these churches. Uh, usually it's to address specific issues in a church. Another reason is, that as we'll see later in this book, the Philippians provided Paul with a financial gift through a messenger named Epaphroditus. And the Philippians began to worry about this man, so Paul is also writing back to tell them that he's okay. And then finally, Paul's just writing to check up on these people. I mean, he's invested part of his life in these people, and this is his only way to communicate with them. He's in prison, so he has to write them letters. So now we're going to go into each individual chapter. I'm going to start. There's only four chapters, so I'm going to do each one. Just a quick kind of summary if you want to follow along. Chapter 1 begins with Paul's greeting to the church at Philippi and is followed by a prayer of thankfulness given by Paul. He then goes on to write about how the opposition and imprisonment he has experienced has furthered the gospel. He also mentions how he's found joy and contentment through these trials. He then instructs the Philippians how they should act whenever he's gone, because he knows he will be gone soon. And he does that throughout the rest of chapter 1. Then moving on to chapter 2, he kind of continues in this, this vein of instructing the Philippians. This time he shifts more of a focus on how they should live with one another and how they should walk in a way that Christ did and live like Christ did. Chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he says that after listing some attributes that he wants them to have. He then continues, starting in verse 12, with the obligations that Christians have. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And what he means by that, fr- that phrase, work out your salvation, he means let your salvation be shown in your works. You're saved, so let it be shown in your actions. After that, he wraps up by informing them that he's sending Timothy to them. And after that, this is where we see the name Epaphroditus. And he, he says... Once Epaphroditus was sent to him with a gift, and once he arrived, he, he was injured or gotten sick. So the Philippians began to worry about him. But he tells them in verse 27, For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, 
and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And he tells the Philippians that Epaphroditus would also be coming home with Timothy. With Timothy. Paul begins the third chapter of Philippians by giving several warnings about false teachers. He calls them dogs, evil workers. After that, he moves on and to perhaps one of the most important parts in this whole book, and he starts talking about what he's lost for the furtherance of the gospel. He talks about how he has lost everything so he could gain the ultimate goal, to gain Christ. He starts talking about these things he's, le- he's left behind. Uh, in verse 8, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. So he's so focused on gaining Christ that he calls everything else worthless, dung, doesn't matter. He then closes this third chapter by telling the Philippians how he has his eyes on the prize, the prize being the high calling of God, for which he'd left all these things behind. He also urges the Philippians to adopt this same mindset, starting in verse 14. He says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. So he's telling them, I've left everything behind. The only thing I care about now is gaining Christ. It's fulfilling the high calling of God. And I want you to do that too. I want you to have the same mind as me. So now we get to chapter 4. And this is probably the most well-known chapter in the book of Philippians because it contains maybe the most well-known verse in the Bible in the modern world. So we're going to read this whole chapter. I'm going to split it up into two parts. So first we're going to read verses 1 through 9. It says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So he starts off chapter 4 by addressing some specific issues that the church of Philippi had, uh, starting with some kind of quarrel or argument between two women named Euodius and Syntyche. And he tells them basically, get along. Then he also gives instructions to an important member of the church, Clement, and some other people who he refers to as fellow laborers. The rest of that section, he's telling the Philippians to be joyful, rejoice in the Lord always. He ends it by basically saying, anything that's good, 
the things you've seen me do, the things you've heard and learned, keep your mind on those things and the God of peace shall be with you. Now we get to the section that has Philippians 3.14. In my Bible, this book, this section is called the Philippian gifts because that's what it's talking about. As I mentioned earlier, the Philippians gave this gift, likely financial, to Paul. So in verse 10 it says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit and may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he concludes with these three verses. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So what's going on starting in verse 10? So we can see that the Philippians have sent Epaphroditus with some sort of gift to Paul, and he's thanking them for it. Then right after he thanks them for it, he says, not that I speak in respect of want. So he's saying, thank you for this gift, but it's not that I need it. He says later on in... Verse 17, not, that I, not because I'm thankful, not because I desire a gift, but as I desire fruit that may abound to your account. So Paul doesn't want them to give because he needs it, but because it furthers the gospel. So now that we've kind of established a timeline here in Philippians and we know what's going on, we need to find a main idea and a lesson. So first, I want to go over what this verse isn't. It isn't a creed for super-Christians. And what I mean by that is, For example, if God wanted Paul to cause earthquakes and shoot lightning from his hands, we all know he could, but that's not what's going on here. Paul was in a time of trial. He was in prison. But even he says he was there for a reason. Back in chapter 1, he said in verse 12, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. So these things he's going through, they're furthering the gospel. This verse is so often misinterpreted, I think, because Christians take the word, where's it at? All things, and assume it means the same thing as anything. I really think there's a difference. I can do all things, not I can do anything. I can do whatever I want. We see that Philippians 4.13 is not a verse about confidence. Rather, it is a verse about contentment through Jesus Christ. So let's see what this verse is actually talking about. It's a comforting reminder 
that through Christ's strength, we can be content throughout the highs and lows of life. Throughout the book of Philippians, Paul talks about his being content with his life, and he speaks a lot about these tough times he's going through, this imprisonment, the loss of all things. He was completely focused on the true prize. He gave up everything. He really didn't care what happened to him as long as it was for the furtherance of the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 23, he even says, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So he's saying, I'd rather be like dead and with Christ, but that's not what I'm needed for right now. So we see that he is content and finds joy in his suffering. But it's not just about his suffering, because he also says in verse 12, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. I know how to be full and how to be hungry. I know how to be content in all of that. Paul uses two extremes to demonstrate that in every aspect of his life, he was content through Jesus. So what does this mean for modern day Christians who, let's be honest, do not have it as bad as Paul? We're not thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. But we do face trials. And we do, we do face ups and downs in our lives. So I think if I could put it into one statement, it'd be something like this. In times of need and lacking, or in times of overflow and abundance, we can make it through the things that make us want to give up or give in and do it with a good spirit, with contentment, because we have an all-powerful God that allows us to endure anything through his son, Jesus Christ. So now that we have this lesson of contentment through God's all-powerfulness and his son, how does, how does that fit in with the rest of the Bible? So starting with the New Testament, we see that Paul's words in Philippians reflected the gospel teachings that nothing is impossible with God. This is seen in Matthew 19, 26, where, God, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples after saying how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they ask him, well, who can be saved? And he says, and it says in verse 26, But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, salvation is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus said it himself, all things are possible through God. Also in Luke 1, chapter 30, I mean Luke chapter 1, verse 37, we see a woman who has managed to conceive a child in her old age. It says in Luke 1, chapter 37, actually we'll start in 36, and behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And that's just two. I mean, there is so many times in the Bible this idea of all-powerfulness that God has. Even in the Old Testament, this perspective can be found. Jeremiah 32, 17. Jeremiah exclaims, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. You know, sometimes we need that reminder. God created everything. I mean, what can he not do? And I think the greatest example of, of being content in suffering would be Job, just enduring and getting through it through God. Job 42 and 2 in spe- specific, this is Job as he's repenting. He says, I know that thou can do everything, 
and that no thought can be withholden from thee. God's closest followers have long known that God, with God nothing is impossible. Whether it's Abraham's promised son Isaac, the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea, the people of Israel entering the Promised Land through Jake, under the leadership of Joshua, God provides on time, in his time, and every time. So the last step, how do we apply this to our lives as modern-day Christians? Now that we know that this idea that God will always be there with his power to let us endure all things, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, the first step is don't let your circumstances determine your joy. Most people look at their circumstances in life and if it's going great, they're happy. But if they're having a bad day, it's, they're sorrowful. But Philippians 4.13 tells us our circumstances don't have to dictate our joy. This verse challenges us to put things in a better perspective. We think we might need all these different things to be happy, to be content. But Paul challenges us here to look at it with a different lens. All we need is Jesus. I mean, Paul is a great example. It would be perfectly understandable for Paul to complain. I mean, he is in prison. I mean, he has gone through punishment. He's been hurt for the furtherance of the gospel, but he doesn't complain. He says he has joy. After, I mean, he, no one would blame him if he complained, but he doesn't let his circumstances determine his joy. This is a challenge for us to do today, and we don't even face the type of circumstances that Paul does. Rather than looking to our circumstances to determine our joy, we should look to Jesus. That leads me into the next thing we can do to be content. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Paul wasn't content because he had some kind of superpower. Philippians 4.13 says the opposite. Paul's saying here that he wasn't enough on his own. It's only the strength of Jesus that even allowed him to be content. We as followers of Christ need to regularly commit time to focusing on Jesus. We can't let the problems around us distract us from the goal. Only when we keep our eyes on Jesus can we endure all things through Christ who gives us strength. The last thing, it's so simple, but so important. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I think this is a simple Christian math equation that everyone should memorize. We need this reminder that if Jesus really is who he says he is, what else has any value? Nothing else matters. Paul calls everything else dung. We can have literally nothing, but if we have Christ, we can have everything and be content in everything. So in conclusion, if we as Christians can do these three things, if we cannot let our circumstances determine our joy, if we can keep our eyes on Jesus, and if we remember that Jesus is everything and should be the one goal, then we will find joy and content through all aspects of our lives by the power of Jesus Christ. No matter what happens, God will, deli- will give us the strength to endure it. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.